and welcome to the From We Travel Show. So glad to have you here. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and my guest today, I said this on social media and I think it's true, my guest is the erudite and charming, or vice versa, Alan Katz. Anybody who knows about cocktails knows about Alan because Alan is uh, the founder of the New York Distilling Company for many years. He was on Martha Stewart Radio as the cocktail expert there. So welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Alan. Thank you, Pauline. You are too kind. I think it's fair to say, at least I see your your life in this way, that, that travel was a big part of your path uh, or your journey of of getting to where you are. It has been instrumental, uh, not only in my journey, but I would say the near constant and ongoing education of my work life. Right. So Alan and I know each other. This is full disclosure. Alan went to college with my husband, and then we all three were in acting class together. Uh, None of us ended up actors, but that's okay. I I consider (laughs) consider myself a recovering actor still. Uh, But you, you really took off. You headed to Italy. And, And what, tell us about your, what you did in Italy. Well, it was one of the most monumental and uh, significant experiences of my entire life. I had never really traveled internationally, and I was in my mid-20s, and I, I still had some thoughts of pursuing some aspect of music, perhaps, in New York City. And I was friends with people who were in all different types of bands, rock bands and parliamentary funk bands and a jazz band. And <laughs> and this was 95, and they would take these summer travels, particularly to Western Europe, and they would come back just exuberant. Alan, you've got to go to Europe. Everything's in Europe. They would go, they would play their tunes. They got fed, they had some beer, and they would come back with a few dollars in their pocket. And it really uh, lit my curiosity and my excitement. And I thought, well, where would I go if I was to take a trip? And I landed very quickly on Italy out of my two great loves, which were music and food. And and the one thing I did know hmm. is that I wanted to go somewhere where they didn't speak English so that right. I could get lost in, in another culture. Well, let me just interrupt. I don't think of Italy as being a big place for music, except for perhaps classical and opera. What am well, I missing? Well, I've I mean, there's great opera, of course, by history. And I was interested in that history. I wanted to go to Verdi's home and Puccini's home and Stravinsky's gravesite at Mm -hmm. the island uh, cemetery in Venice. And I went to all of those places. But it's also a great hub, as many places in Europe are, for jazz. I mean, Bologna has a wonderful jazz scene and great music stores. And I'm you know, a little bit affected, I suppose, in my uh, psychology for travel, but I'm like, great music store? Italy? <laughs> Sign me up. So you, you went to Italy to, to, to pursue those things, but you ended up working there, right? <laughs> you ended up staying I did. I, I stepped, man, I stepped into the greatest pile of good fortune, as I really have a few times in my, uh, in my adult life. I did. I I was 
um, traveling. You know, I planned a six-week trip. I know I say planned. That would be loosely at best between Milan, Venice, and Rome. And I was, I was in Tuscany. I had never been there. And I was uh, not really in Florence. I was northwest of Florence in what would what then seemed to just be burgeoning in popularity. If you saw uh, travel guides and publications, everyone listed two places, Lucca and the Cinque Terre. I remember seeing it mm. all over the place in the 90s. And I went to Viareggio on the seaside coast and I stayed in little towns outside of Lucca and... I met some people who, who ran what for me was an inspiring cooking school uh, in northwest Tuscany, about 20 minutes from the coast. And uh, we just hit it off. And they said, you should come work here. I said, what do you mean? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this was a much easier time. There were no yeah. requirements of paperwork. And I was getting paid in lira. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was just mewling wow. wine back and forth from Italy to New York as I recall. <laughs> and I, I spent, uh, you know, two years uh, primarily stationed there and, and working at the Toscana Saporita cooking school. And, and that again was, was firmly instrumental because it was the first time in my life that I had, was in such close proximity to ingredients. Forget about cocktails, cooking. Huh. I, everything was right there. You went to the bakery every day. You went to wow. the butcher when you needed meat. You went mm -hmm. to the fishmonger two days a week because that's when the fresh seafood came in. And all of the herbs and the vegetables were from the farm, I would say, about 100 acres that I was living on. And wow. And um, damn, it was sexy. <laughs> it, it was stimulating. It was yeah. ethereal. It was, it was wonderful to say, wow. Well, people really live this way. And and that has stuck with me, you know, since that experience essentially 25 years ago. Well, there is a term for that type of cooking and eating, and it's a, a movement, too. And you were for very for a very long time the face of that movement in the U.S. when you moved back. I'm talking about slow food. Can you? No, it was it was it was started in Italy, and I wasn't entirely aware of it while I was living there. But you could see the slow food emblem. The logo is a a little snail, and the words "slow food" intentionally in English, uh, though it was started in Italy and, and burgeoning in European countries first. But but the monumental effort was to create a slow food movement in the United States, of course, the global capital of fast food, and. I didn't know a lot about it. And in those days, I don't even know if this still exists. I dialed 411 for information to see if slow food existed. And someone, lo and behold, answered the phone on the other line. And they had just opened what we would sparingly call an office, someone's second bedroom in their apartment. And I said, well, I think I, think I could be of help to this. And I, I became, over the course of a decade... Uh, certainly one of a few Uber volunteers nationally. And, and I just, it, again, it was inspirational and educational all the same uh, to the point that I, I was chair of the board of directors for a while. And it afforded me the opportunity for even more travel across the U.S. to places I had never mm. been and to Canada and Mexico in many ways for the first time and back to Europe. And in this case, to other countries in Europe and to meet people from all over the world and with the greatest humility from places that at the time 
particularly from Africa, to be very honest, that I had never heard of. And if that's not the most humbling thing as an American, as a human being to say, wow, we're two human beings on this planet. And and I wasn't aware of the country that you come from. And it was all around Mm -hmm. the inspiration of gastronomy and and food heritage and traditions that we were celebrating. So before, I I feel like we jumped a step here in the story. Can you (laughs) give a quick uh, summary of what slow food is? Oh, certainly. Well, slow food was started in the mid 80s by some great uh, revolutionaries in Italy uh, who were followers and friends of Dario Fo. Uh, for mm. example, and a great playwright. Exactly. And and they wanted to and still do wanted to start a revolution through food. And in its earliest days, it was a simple affront to uh, bluntly the dastardly opening of a McDonald's near the Spanish steps in <laughs> Rome. And mm. there were pickets and signs. Fast food is for Rambo. And hmm. it really was, you know, how, how dare this imperial uh, society come and bring their uh, food culture or lack thereof to infiltrate our centuries of respect and admiration, not just for food culture, but for farmers, for the people that actually right. grow the food that we eat. And it has yeah. evolved over the years to really create more of a succinct link from the land and the people that tend to it and how food actually comes to our plate. So not just chef driven or expensive, rare food driven, but really having a a respect and admiration for the entire process of our food system and hopefully a charge to help people uh, cast a greater awareness of what we would call sustainable agriculture so that like many things mm. the resources are limited and if we're not aware right, of sure. how they're used uh, and protected they will be gone just like right. many things on our planet yeah yeah well that's a big problem uh and so how did you get from slow food into cocktails but for me, this was the great leap. So I, I came back to New York from the cooking school experience. I had gotten involved in slow food. And again, I was a volunteer. And if there was a tremendous perk, we were all trying to proselytize for this movement and meet new people and farmers and chefs and consumers mm. who might also be interested in these ideals, frankly. And I was going to uh, places that I had never been before, what I would, with the utmost respect, called you know, secondary cities, even tertiary cities in the United States. And many cases, we were driving huh. from New York out to Davenport or to Oklahoma City, or you know, not just to Dallas, hmm. but to the communities two hours west of Dallas. And it was fascinating to me to see the range of food culture. And, you know, it, it, would, it still felt in a very collegiate manner that we were, we were searching for something, but we didn't know whether it was there or not. And that something, at least to me in a very personal way, was a question we posed to ourselves that specifically was, what if anything might be considered authentic American gastronomy? In other words, American huh. slow food. Here we are right. talking about... 
arborio rice from Italy and cheese, you know, authentic camembert from France mm. and herbs from uh, Provence, Provence or, <laughs> or Central Africa or the sure. Caribbean. And I'm like, well, all right, I know we're good at co-opting all sorts of cultural things as, as our country. And some of that's great because we co-opt them and then we turn them into something original in many cases. But I, we were curious, what if anything by history might fall into a category to say, boy, this is something we could celebrate as Americans. And increasingly, I, I came around to two and just two things. One is barbecue of the American South. And uh, oh, sure. I was literally yeah. just texting a friend. I used to go down annually, even on occasion to judge the Blue Ridge Barbecue Festival in one of these travels that became habitual in Tryon, North Carolina, just outside of Asheville. Wow. And why fly? We would drive, you know, drive the Blue Ridge Parkway. And for me, seeing the country mm. from the ground became not only romantic, but astoundingly stunning. You know, to see the Smoky Mountains mm. for the first time when you're not flying over them. Well, what else, what else could they be called? Right. Or seeing the Rocky Mountains, yeah. even more so, being stunned mm. into submission. When you're at the ground level, not flying over them. You can't move. It's so stunning um, because you're you're trapped there almost in a two dimensional picture looking up at these extraordinary masses. And so barbecue, we settled on. Well, that, of course, barbecue of the American South is, in my mind, the American gastronomy, the ultimate American gastronomy. Sure, sure. And then the others. And this now all of a sudden the timeline is is the later 90s. And I was living in the East Village, and you could just feel a little change of course in the celebration and attention to food, and perhaps that link in a gastronomic sense to farmers as well. And hmm. there were lots of places in Greenwich Village, and they were restaurants that had bars that you used to sit at and have cocktails, but they were becoming trendy enough that you'd now sit at the bar and have dinner. Right. Thought, well, what were these bars used for? Well, of course, they were used for cocktail service. And at the end of 1999, specifically, and this is getting really geeky, but what the hell? <laughs> Please. New yeah. Year's Eve, 1999. And you were in the same era. I there was were... I was hiding out in Vermont because I was scared oh. about Y2K <laughs> over that New well, Year's. And we had I a was generator in... <laughs> in Vermont. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, I think I had an email address then. Well, in, in any event, factually, at least in my opinion, New Year's Eve 1999, yeah. there were the sum total of four cocktail bars in New York City. Hmm. There was Angel Share, which still exists around East yes. 9th Street. It's a great place. There was Passerby, a wonderful bar that, if I'm not mistaken, was on West 15th Street. In the sort of Chelsea uh, uh, West Village neighborhood, and it was a great bar. It had a Saturday night fever dance floor. It was a great uh, sort of singles hangout. But it was the first semblance of, hey, where are these cocktails from? And they were serving a lot of throwback cocktails. In other words, nineteenth century cocktails. There was the Rainbow hmm. Room, which was still right. under the glow and effect of its influence of the Titan the Zeus, the Mount Olympus of all American 
bartenders today, a man by the name of Dale DeGroff, who revolutionized oh, yes. cocktail uh, drinking and cocktail service in our country. But right. that, frankly, I had been there once and it was fun and the views of Central Park were great. And it was a fantastic place, but it was too expensive for me at the time. Sure. And then 1999, that New Year's Eve. Wait, wait, can I guess? It, go ahead. Pegu Club? No, Pegu no. Club comes later. Oh, it did. Okay. Tell us what happened on 1999. On Eldridge Street, down on the Lower East Side, a tiny little cocktail bar opened called Milk and Honey by the famed oh. uh, cocktail bar impresario, uh, who sadly is no longer with us, a man by the name of Sasha Petrosky. And hmm. that was it. And now you can't count the number of cocktail bars. But, but oh, there yeah. I was sort of between 99 and 2000, 2001 and the early aughts thing. Now this is an interesting cultural shift and it fed into the, uh, uh, the hunger I had for an American slow food or an American gastronomy. And boy, if I didn't go off the deep end on cocktails <laughs> and cocktail culture and New well, York city cocktail culture. Well, as let, well, Let me ask you, I am assuming that what happened in 1999 was a resurgence because wasn't there a major cocktail culture in New York City and I would think also in Chicago and other major cities of the United States pre-prohibition and then it all just got slashed and burned and died first? Well, there there was, and I would say there was even a cocktail culture through prohibition. I mean, we we, huh. we, we hear enough and frankly, I'm if I pray for anything, in comparing our current times to a century ago, I mean, it must have been a lot worse a hundred years ago. The country had just come through World War One. Right. We're going through the Great Depression. A flu pandemic. Uh, yes, exactly. With the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, um, mm -hmm. and and what happened was, you know, in some semblance, the Roaring Twenties. And even though that was during Prohibition, you know, you see all the photos. They're drinking cocktails. I think what really happened right. is as our access to quality ingredients for well-mixed drinks diminished, mm. our taste buds diminished. Huh. And so we've been reclaiming our taste buds, you know, for the last nearly 90 years. Um, and, and so, yes, there absolutely was an, an astounding cocktail culture. And it didn't die completely with prohibition. But all the great bartenders said, well, we're going to go make a living somewhere else. And they went... They went huh. to Havana and they went to Paris and they went to London and other places and started exhibiting this style of American cocktails in these great international settings around the world. So let me let me push you back for a second then. So so cocktails went from America to Europe and not vice versa. So was the cocktail as an entity of mixed liquors created here? Or is there any way to say where the cocktail was? Yeah, created? you know, there's some fine tuning uh, that, that has to be done. We don't own it as America, as Americans, uh, 100%. But I'll give us 90 to 95%. There's British influence Sure. Uh, there's Indian influence uh, of the nation of India as well in mixing mm. spirits, alcohol and tea, alcohol and tonic. But the idea of cocktails, and it sounds so simple to us today, is revolutionized in the 19th century 
because in many ways, Americans of that era had a penchant for ice. <laughs> ice. It, ice yeah, is it, what it makes wasn't it. just mixing the spirits, yeah. but it was, hey, we're going to have chilled drinks. I mean, think about the eastern seaboard. A lot of it was hmm. swampland that in the summer was hot and humid. Sure. And ships would come down uh, with, with uh, monumental ice blocks from Canada. And you would huh. keep this ice as long as you could and mix it with alcohol and sugar and bitters. And wow. sometimes seltzer, if you had a seltzer siphon. And uh-huh. those were the earliest American cocktails. Wow. It's so fascinating to me that a lot of the 1999 cocktail bars were in the East Village because there was this great museum. I'm I'm actually not sure if it made it through the pandemic called the Museum of the American Gangster. And it is in a, a apartment that was the home of a of a prohibition era gangster who used these tunnels wow. that are dug under the East Village to move barrels of hooch uh, from place to place. <laughs> and uh, in this in this museum, one of the reasons it became a museum is they found this massive safe. And they spent a long time trying to open it. And I won't tell you what was in it because that's one of the mysteries that you learn about <laughs> in the museum. But bathtub gin was made in this in this in this place. And it was, you know, a, a funnel, tunneled all around the East Village. Yeah, well, let me tell you, I've made bathtub gin. I had to try it. And I was dismayed because it was really pretty good. well what makes i mean bathtub gin is made in a bathtub right it could be made in a bath. we did we made it in a tub we got a little tub what made it bathtub gin well i mean you get neutral grain spirit and frankly anyone could do this at home legally there are uh uh, you know grain alcohol you can find not in every state but in most states uh, you can find grain alcohol primary brand is called graves and you can get tinctures uh, to flavor the grain alcohol. And the predominant flavor, at least by law, is meant to be juniper berry. And while wow. we at, at our distillery distill juniper berries and other botanicals, you can get a tincture and add a few drops of juniper berry and a few drops of lemon peel or orange peel or anything else you like, and then water it down a little bit and you have your own bathtub gin. And man, you can have a pretty good party. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So getting back to the cocktail experience, because I do want to bring this back, not just it's the history is fascinating, but I want to bring this back also to the experience, because we're always talking about experiences when we're looking at travel. When you come to New York, how do you have a great cocktail experience? And I will say one of the things, let, let me just say that I think it's going to the shanty. Which is which is Alan's <laughs> bar. Alan runs the New York Distilling Company. Uh, my husband was one of his character references because you were one of the first distilleries to return to New York City uh, at, since Prohibition, right? Uh, it's true. So, what makes the the that a, a travel experience? Visiting the Shanty or visiting one of the other great bars of New York? 
Well, again, in a city like New York, there are so many different types of experiences. And if there was something that tied them all together, I would hope it's it's a commitment to really great cocktails. Now, they can be simple cocktails or classic cocktails. And I would admit, oftentimes, what's been born of this second golden age of cocktails in the last, let's say, 20 years is the desire to constantly evolve and create new drinks. And we're, we're creative people. We want to be artists in this sense. Sure. I, I didn't make a profession in, in music or otherwise, but but this is my, in many ways, performance art. And so for us, if you were to come to the shanty at New York Distilling Company, the the attitude and opportunity from a travel and adventure standpoint is that our bar is literally attached to our manufacturing space. It looks out onto the distillery. And while we feature right. spirits and beer and cider from all over the world, there is a primary focus on the gins and rye whiskeys that we make on the other side of the glass, so to speak. And so we're able to tell you with the most uh, the utmost intimacy about the spirits you're drinking and why we've chosen to make a Manhattan a certain way or a martini or a Negroni a certain way to enhance the experience with our distilled spirits. But the truth is there's so many different types of bars in Brooklyn, in Manhattan, in Queens, and really all over New York City that it's a few fold in terms of the adventure. And this I would apply whether I was drinking in New York or London or Tokyo. And it's it's the environment sure. that's created within the bar. And it's not just the decor, it's the music. It's how mm. the bartenders or the servers might be dressed, whether formally or casually, and how the entire picture of a gastronomic experience is presented to you as a consumer that hopefully is one of the most memorable things you might ever do your whole life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I love the fact that at the Shanty, you guys give tours of the distillery every week. That's true, too. Yeah, so yeah could... we do it on the weekends. Uh, oftentimes on Wednesdays, too, with a particular whiskey focus now. Right, because you've been around a decade now, which means that you had time to actually age the whiskey. I thought it was it, – it, it's a your story is so fascinating for somebody who doesn't know about the processes of, of creating alcohol. In order to be a business, you had to go to clear li- liquors first – because those can be uh, created and sold pretty quickly, whereas to make a, a whiskey that's worth drinking, it takes a while, except if you mix it with sugar. <laughs> can, you, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about, about like Harry's Tot, Perry's Tot, and, sure. Harry's and tot. Uh, Rock and Rye, and, and the different sure. things that you make? Because I think it's, what you do is, is something that, other distilleries around the world and the U.S. do, and, and, and it's it's kind of fascinating. So, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Not at all. Well, the quick linchpin to all of it for us was that we wanted to make our own spirits. It's not illegal. There's nothing wrong with it. But many brands will simply buy spirits from other people and put a label on it, and, and they're a sales hmm. and marketing team. We were fascinated by the process uh, and to be manufacturers in an urban setting, in our case in Brooklyn. And so we started making gin and rye whiskey within our first year. But as you said, for us in particular, you know, young whiskey is, is really just that. If I was to describe our outlook and desire 
for the rye whiskeys we make, and we only make rye whiskey, was that we wanted to create something that tastes of more than just wood. And a lot of times hmm. when you, you know, you need to recoup your investment, you sort of feel the urge to release young whiskey because you need, you need that revenue back. And so we, like right. others for certain, started making gin. And, and the outlook on gin and rye was this look at classic cocktails. What were people drinking in the 19th century, really from the 1850s and 60s all the way through the Prohibition era? And a lot of it was gin and rye. And so that's what we settled on fairly early on. And that we knew that we could have a lot of creative freedom to to not just come up with the spirits, but to work on their development in the context of mixing our own spirits in cocktails, primarily at first in classic cocktails, because that was the revolution going on at the moment, this point of rediscovery. As you were saying earlier, a lot of these bars or the cocktail culture of New York City started in the East Village, one, because there were small spaces and the rent was affordable, but but a great density sure. of population whose apartments were too small to drink in at night. We got to go out to the bar. And, <laughs> right, and, right. And, and they were all primarily in the style of a speakeasy. Hmm. And we've since graduated beyond that, not just in New York, but around the country and in many ways right. around the world. But probably for the first decade, from 2000 to 2010 and a little bit beyond, all the bars around the country were mimicking to a certain degree speakeasy style by decor and also as a point of rediscovering lost or forgotten spirits and cocktails. And so for us, the gins that right. we make also harken back. Perry's Tot, as you referenced, is a Navy strength gin that we bottle at 57% alcohol. And it's based on an English wow. tradition. And the key is you only use a little bit in cocktails, but hmm. wonderful in a gin and tonic or martini. And then we came up you know, with a second gin named for the, the great New York writer, Dorothy Parker. And, and that's become our yeah. mainstay. And it's a little bit more contemporary, but it still has a strict structure based on juniper berry, which our belief is, you know, that's where all gin begins and ends. Now, do most distillers make uh, their uh, product to be mixed into cocktails, or are some folks focused on things that you drink straight up? Is that is is that a, a dividing line to dip with different distilleries? It, it's one line, you know. Things like food and drink, I'd often say, analogously, is a um, it's like a six lane superhighway, and hmm. people are going at different speeds. For us which I can obviously speak to, you know, my background all of a sudden became substantial around cocktails and mixing drinks. And I wanted to learn the craft of bartending and why certain spirits were mixed together. And what was the difference between say fresh citrus, or if you let citrus sit around for a few days and how it becomes stale uh, and, and what that mm. does to change the flavor of cocktails. So we probably have. Let me just ask you very quickly: Do you yeah. ever want to use stale citrus, or no? Never. Oh, okay. Never. <laughs> but but in you know in the the late nineties and, and early two thousands, probably the most monumental transition in American cocktail culture is a move from mix uh, what would be called sour mix off the gun, so mm -hmm. to speak. I hope that makes sense where you use, you know, you can find in any bar or not any, but most bars and restaurants, a soda gun behind the bar where you can get, 
your cola, right. your uh, other sure. soda, tonic, etc. And you'd get orange juice or sour mix off the soda gun. Huh. It's crap. Right. And, right. you know, the evidence is, is you wouldn't finish a cocktail. Say you just want a, a whiskey sour or a gimlet. It's garbage. Right, and right. it took an astounding amount of, of effort to convince people, particularly bar and restaurant owners, that a titanic shift to fresh citrus would be beneficial for business. The consumers, once they tasted it, knew. And lots of the bartenders right. were the early adopters. But people thought, I'm going to be throwing lemons and limes away. Now, there is a bit of a a mathematical science to how much you need, but there's no comparison from a cocktail with fresh citrus to one with mix off the gun. Sure. Sure. Uh, And and fortunately, we've basically entirely left the concept of a sour mix off a gun behind, I think, permanently. Right. Now, when I was uh, when we were talking a little bit before we made this uh, public, uh, we uh, were talking about Mm -hmm. a city that people probably don't realize has an amazing cocktail culture right now. It's on the Pacific coast of the United States. I was surprised that you think that this is a major cocktail city. Portland, Oregon. Why? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's not just a major uh, a cocktail city. It's a it's a food and culture and wine. Obviously, sure. you know people think of uh, of Oregon and the Willamette Valley and other areas sure. for their wine, but it, it became you know a hotbed. I think in many ways, and I'm not an expert. I've been fortunate enough to go there several times, but you have a great mix of cultural influences in the Pacific Northwest, not just from the United States. But from Vancouver and Western Canada, from Hawaii, from other Asian uh, and Pacific countries in Asia. And it it became this, in my opinion, great melting pot uh, for cocktails and cocktail bars. And it, you know, probably even strikes itself as, you know, a renegade. I wouldn't quite call it anti-New York, but it's got very much its Hmm. own mark and its own sensibility. And any time I think you get from Northern California up into, you know, Oregon and Washington state, there's a vibrant attitude about agriculture. And so the relationship, not just for food, but for cocktails as well, for the ingredients that you can source locally and seasonally really has had a, a sturdy influence as well on the cocktail culture there. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think of, of brown cocktails. I think of Kentucky. Uh, is that a good place for a road trip if you are a fan of, of whiskeys? And where specifically would you tell people to go? Well, the best things about Kentucky, having had the, the great fortune to be, be, be there you know, more times than I can count, uh, is, is as you're, you rightly say, is in American whiskey, predominantly, of course, bourbon. And uh, 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 once upon a time, you would go on what's called the Whiskey Trail, the American Whiskey Trail, <clears throat> which right. winds through some of the most prominent names in American distilling and bourbon distilling of all time. Uh, Heaven Hill Distillery, Wild Turkey Distillery, Jim Beam, Maker's Mark, uh, Four Roses Distillery, uh, Woodford mm-hmm. Reserve, and they're beautiful pastoral places 
And what's fascinating to me is that many of them that have been around for 80, 90, 100, 100 plus years is to learn about their history and how they, whether by interest or necessity, have also evolved, whether by process, by Mm. their own agricultural or sustainable agricultural interests. But what's really interesting, if you have the time, go on, go to the distilleries themselves. But Louisville itself is also a great food and drink town. Oh, great city. Yeah. Mm -hmm. An art town. The Speed Museum is there, of course. And if you're a baseball fan, the Louisville Slugger Museum is there. And I've got little kids. We were there a couple years ago. And the Science Center is fantastic for kids and families. And the Science Center yeah. and the Louisville Slugger Museum. And the Muhammad Ali Museum is fabulous. And the Muhammad Ali fabulous. Museum. And, and, you know, hotels like 21C are all on Main Street, Louisville, Kentucky. And Main yeah. Street has turned, in my opinion, into the Disney World for <laughs> bourbon enthusiasts. And most huh. of the major brands now have great visitor centers and what I would call boutique distilling, live distilling operations in their own spaces spread out across Main Street. I mean, you can walk Main Street and and, wow. and spend four days visiting these wow. distilleries, tasting their products, learning about the process, and actually, be it on a smaller scale, observe how bourbon is actually made. Huh. Well, and that's probably safer than a road trip, I would think. <laughs> you do need always... a designated driver yeah, on the whiskey trail. Yes. Definitely, definitely. Well, this has been so fun, Alan. Thank you so much for anybody, uh, you know, this people come in and out on call-in. And I should say, we're doing this show live at 6 p.m. on the call-in app uh, every Thursday we may switch to a different time, but that's the schedule right now. So I know a lot of people listen to this in other places, but do visit us at Colin uh, so that, that you can, you know, come and, and talk to our guests yourself. Uh, thank you so much, Alan Katz of the New York Distilling Company and the Shanty. Uh, always such a pleasure speaking with you. You too, Pauline. Thank you. Watching cable